Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. We speak today to Andy Holm, who is the Senior Metals Correspondent for Reuters. So a great privilege for us indeed. We talk about the general cross-metal overview in the market. Uh, we talk a lot about the automotive sector uh, collapse, uh, potential recovery, what it's going to take. We look at some of the commodities involved there. We also get into the various stimulus packages from China, US and Europe and the ecosystems that they're trying to build up um, and the effect on you know, what you should be looking at as investors. We kind of drill down into th- uh, a few uh, commodities, in particular copper, nickel, zinc and aluminium. A few surprises in there. I was quite interested about that. So enjoy the podcast. Andy, how are you doing, sir? I'm very well, thank you. Sort of surviving lockdown. Oh, good lad, good lad. It's it's tough, but hopefully we're coming somewhere towards the end of it. Um, but look, um, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I'm, I'm you know been wanting to speak to you uh, about a couple of uh, topics. Uh, you're, you're new to our viewers, uh, subscribers, not just here in the UK but around the world. So maybe why don't you give people a little bit of background about yourself? Yeah, sure. I mean, for, uh, for my misfortunes, I have been riding about the industrial metal markets off and on since wait for in 1987. Uh, most recent incarnation is uh, I joined Reuters in 2008. Actually, they bought my company, Metals Insider, and they bought me as well. And since then, uh, I am titled Senior Metals Columnist for Reuters. I put out about two or three uh, items on the industrial metals complex every week. Um, and... Yeah, I've been doing this now for, as I said, far too long. But I guess it sort of makes me an expert. It, I, I think it does. I think you definitely, because you, you are the senior metals uh, columnist at Reuters, so you are the expert. But look, we, we're going to talk some pretty big topics uh, today. And it's been brought about by a conversation I had with a CEO in the space, I won't name names, uh, who said that battery metal companies, miners, are going to be crushed because of what's going on with the you know, impact of COVID, it's uh, obviously its ability, uh, so the fact that it's affected abil- people's ability to mine and supply chains across the world. And lateral, you know, you know, moving forward, it's going to affect people's buying behavior when it comes to this whole you know, um, EV thematic. So some big statements there from that guy. So why don't we kick off and get your take on the market as it stands today and where you think it's going in regard to, uh, in, the, in this case, uh, maybe some cross, cross metals, uh, if, you, if, you, if you don't mind. When you're looking at a battery metal specifically, your source is not necessarily wrong. It's a very hostile place for miners at the moment. It's a very hostile place, particularly for junior miners. Um, we have to sort of remember how we started, how life was before any of us had heard of COVID-19. Battery metals were not having a good year last year. You know, they boomed two or three years ago, and that's when everyone got very excited and started talking about lithium and cobalt and nickel. Um, but actually, since then, boom has turned to bust. Simply as on all commodity markets, too much production was brought on too quickly, just at the time that battery uh, demand in China was kind of losing some of its momentum. That's where we started this year. COVID-19 has acted as an accelerator of that trend. 
right? We have seen first level demand destruction in the form of battery manufacturers having to uh, take downtime during lockdown. And as you mentioned there, we have a bigger demand problem loom, which is well, what do we use all these batteries for? We use them to sort of go into electric vehicles, right? Who now in this current environment is thinking about buying a new car? So one of the problems is, I mean, so as I said, we came in with this into this year with declining prices for the likes of cobalt, lithium, and nickel, right? Uh, people were already worried about oversupply. Market was going to have to work through it, but um, since then, uh, things have got worse. Prices have fallen further, and that's of course has dried up all interest from financiers and bankers in terms of funding new projects. So if your source uh, who gave you that quote is in, is in that sort of like project development stage, this is a very, very tough and hostile environment for, uh, for junior miners. But is there a, a light at the end of the tunnel? I would argue yes. Okay. Well, but, but let's talk about that then, because um, there would need to be. Because if you look at the automotive companies, they've invested collectively around $300 billion into the infrastructure which is to deliver their version of electric vehicles, whether it be partial or entire uh, uh, electric cars. So the, the thematic, which happened before COVID, um, was been, had been building up for a few years. Um, could this be good for investors? Could it be good for, um, I'm sorry, would automotive manufacturers need to incentivize buyers of electric vehicles to get this market moving quicker. Exactly. And, and I would draw your attention to two particular markets, right? China, world's largest EV market. I mean, market leader by some uh, margin, right? Now, one of the reasons we had weak market pricing last year was China was preparing to remove the subsidies it's been offering buyers on new electric vehicles. Yeah. As a result of COVID, that has been that policy has been uh, changed. Subsidies will now be extended to 2022, albeit with a tapering off. That actually is very, very good news for the Chinese EV market, which was showing signs of flagging a little bit over the last couple of years. Right. More importantly, the focus was already turning to the European market uh, because of diesel gate. We know the background to this. I mean, sort of a the, uh, the European car makers are in a bind. They have sort of like increasingly draconian sort of emission standards coming. Their solution, which was diesel, is now no longer a solution, right? So this was a trend that was already sort of happening behind the scenes. It's going to massively accelerate it. Why? Look at the national support packages now coming out for automotive sort of like sectors, which of course every country is, is very proud and very defensive of its own automotive sector. I would draw uh, your attention to one in particular, Germany, home of Volkswagen, home of Mercedes, home of Daimler, right? So unsurprisingly, the Germans are going to sort of like a, a, a pompous sort of support package specifically tailored into the automotive sector. They will not give any extra subsidy to buyers of old cars, despite massive lobbying, as you can imagine. These guys have got like hundreds of thousands of units on their forecourts. No. Subsidies are raised for electric vehicles, and equally important, it will become law in Germany that every petrol station will have an EV charging point. Right? That was going to sort of, you know, everyone's been building out their EV infrastructure, but at varying national rates in Europe, uh, 
That's the commitment to the EV revolution. I would suggest to you, and you can find similar packages going on in France, uh, where Macron says he wants to be the EV center of the world. Italy, Greece, the laggard in the EV market is, is, is hiking the subsidies. So I would suggest that this could be collectively a massive accelerator of EV adoption in Europe. I mean, it's, it's fascinating. I know you've kind of, we, we've leapt from, you know, a, a little bit of Chinese stimulus to European stimulus, but it's also going on in the States. There's, you know, a lot of uh, automotive manufacturers in the States who are coming up with their own version of this. And um, there's also a lot of protectionism, you know, uh, security issues around the production of various commodities in the States where they want to create their own ecosystem there. So you've kind of got these three very heavyweight centers for automotive uh, manufacturer um, trying to defend their own positions and come up with their own positions in the marketplace. What happens if there's a slightly unlevel playing field here? Um, you know, who are the beneficiaries? Well, I think I mean, one of the, uh, the underlying trends, I mean, and the US is definitely leading the way, but it is happening as much in Europe and Japan at the moment, is resourcing, uh, bringing your resources closer to deglobalization, right? In the US, this is wrapped very much in a national security language. That's partly a reflection of Mr. Trump and uh, the, the focus on tariffs. But the same thing is happening in Europe. There is, you know, like I mean, many pan-European sort of like alliances now in the battery sector looking to essentially stimulate and build from scratch an entire battery supply chain. Japan's doing so. Everyone, this is part of the, I would say, the, uh, the deglobalization trend again. It was happening before COVID came along, but COVID is going to be a massive um, uh, accelerator. You know, what you will have, I mean, it is currently impossible, I would suggest, for the United States, um, say, to build out things that it wants, like a rare earth uh, magnet supply chain, right? It's maybe over a period of 10, 15 years. So what will it have to do logically? It has to form alliances. So think of sort of a NATO of minerals, if you like, there's been a lot of interaction in the US and Australia about uh, what we call strategic minerals, right? It's a very hot subject at the moment. Europe is 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 doing the same, but with less maybe political like a verbiage around it. But is it but that language, you're right, it has been around since before COVID, and I think Trump has been a big key driver of this because we were talking endlessly about trade trade wars and protectionism and national security. Those aren't necessarily good things. Sorry, we're going to get slightly out of metals only here, but, uh, but, just, but generally, it's not necessarily a, a good global uh, strategy to have all of this, um, you know, self-interest because the, surely the, the bigger picture is more important than this protectionism, which we're seeing all around the world. Um, actually, funny enough, metals are a really nice drill down into U.S. trade policy. Yeah, um, it's very easy, I think, uh, for other people in the rest of the world to sort of dismiss everything Trump says because he is Mr. Trump, right? But they are quite serious that this is a national security issue for them, and that was building in the Obama administration as well. It becomes very simple. If you regard your single biggest geopolitical rival as China, which the US increasingly does, you have a problem if your military depends on materials that come from China. This is a kind of, a, so this is a really big picture. I mean, 
there is a strategic rivalry between these two countries. And the likes of sort of battery metals, actually, fun enough, are one of the front lines in that. Rare earths are another one, right? China dominates these supply chains. That's fine if anyone's enjoying a friendly commercial sort of like relationship. The U.S.'s relationship, I would suggest, with China has changed fundamentally, and it starts before Trump, and he is his own accelerator of it. But if he goes, I would suggest U.S. policy is not going to change. And, you know, this is kind of like global geopolitical rivalry in a way that we probably haven't experienced since maybe uh, the Cold War years and the Soviet Union. Um, and actually, as the metals, when the U.S. talks about tariffs because, you know, they want to protect the metals industry, they're, they're not putting the wall over ice. They genuinely believe this is a national security issue for them. Um, so metal supply chains, particularly sensitive areas like that, are being politicized in a way that we haven't probably experienced for many years. But doesn't that lead us somewhere towards some kind of uh, either national nationalizing of certain uh, commodities, metals. So you talk about rare earths. We, we've spoken to um, a few rare earths companies recently, you know, and then there's one, um, actually, uranium company, which has got the ability to process rare earths at its mills. It's called White Mesa Mill. And they have been, as a consequence of a whole section 232 process they've been through for the last two years on uranium, are now talking the same language of creating a section 232 for rare earths and vanadium. And so the section 232 is basically where the, the you know, in this case, two companies lobbied the government to uh, either introduce tariffs or incentivizations for a specific industry on the basis that it was national security and that their adversaries, I think was the word used in the petition, being China, being Russia uh, and Kazakhstan and the like, um, we should not be, or they should not be dependent on imports. I think as you alluded to earlier in this in this conversation. But do, do you think that's? I mean, you said you they they truly believe it, and you think the next government, which you know may or may not be a democratic government, which seems to be a bit more liberal, would follow the same view. I mean, I mean, do you honestly believe that? I genuinely do. Uh, and, and, you know, I would suggest that the turning point in U.S. policy came under Barack Obama. Interesting. Uh, Obama's sort of approach to this was very different. I mean, I think, uh, if I remember correctly, the U.S. took China to the WTO 17 times for commodities. It won every case, right? Um, unfortunately, President Trump doesn't do the WTO. I mean, his instinctive response is tariffs. So you have a very specific political agenda overriding, as I said, it, it's a different response from Obama's to the same underlying perception. And that perception is being fed by the US military. I mean, its job is to sort of like, I mean, to work out what its threats are, right? Um, and I think, I mean, just picking up on the language now um, that's coming out of the US political leadership and both parties, not I genuinely believe that this drive towards greater self-sufficiency of resource uh, will outlast uh, Trump. Indeed, the, the only difference would be probably that, I mean, an incoming uh, Democrat administration would probably not reach for the tariff button so often. Um, they would, again, maybe revert to more multilateral sort of a conversation, as uh, Barack Obama did. But this underlying theme, I think, is, is all defining 
Um, and as I said, I mean, it's very easy to get caught up in the US because it grabs the headlines. Europe is doing the same. Europe is funding lithium mines, right? It's funding sort of like uh, the build out of battery capacity. It also has decided that it doesn't want to be 100% dependent on, let's say, extended supply chains for something it regards as a core industry going forward. Yeah, essentially, I mean, I think that's perhaps a bigger topic for another another day. You know, mm. s- you know, state versus private uh, funding for whether whether it be mining or battery ecosystems where you, we you know, have gigafactories being built. But like I say, it's probably one for another day. We ought to bring this back. Sorry. If I may interrupt, the simple fact is that right now, the Department of Defense in the US is prepared to spend money backing rare earth operators, right? The, the funds are there. That is state capitalism already happening. Uh, when they regard it as a serious enough a threat, you're already seeing the state stepping in uh, and not leaving it to to the market. Yeah, like I said, I'd love to talk to you about this some more because we've experienced a lot about it when we've been dealing with uranium over the past, the, you know, last year and a half, two two years, and the, the 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 fun and the games that are that are played, the politicking that is played. Um, you know, money has been put up. Um, you know, we, you know, large sums have been talked about. But no sums allocated, no detail, no view on how it gets implemented and who the beneficiaries are. So there's, it's a very long uh, food chain with a lot of hands out uh, wanting wanting the the capital. But I think there's there's no mistaking the intent by the U.S. government, the language being used by the U.S. government that they're they're serious about making this happen. It's just how quickly. Um, let's bring it back on track somewhat. Okay, we, so we were talking about automotive, and we were talking about China, Europe, and the U.S. Uh, stimulus and incentivizations to maybe help the, the battery metal space. Um, can you what, what can you tell me about the supply side action? Uh, what I mean in any specific metal or? Well, it just generally across ba- battery for now, um, because I'm just interested to see, see how, what people are doing, how quickly we can see a return. Uh-huh. Well, I mean, essentially, I mean, in terms of uh, lithium and cobalt, you're seeing a very similar trend because the price trend has been similar. Um, you are seeing the major players take uh, production curtailments. Uh, pretty much the, the, the project pipeline has been killed off temporarily and a complete drying up of activity in the junior exploration space, uh, all of which are just kind of simple drivers of a very low price environment. So what are the companies going to do? Because that's going to have an impact on ability to get financed. It's going to have an impact on their ability to produce, you know, grow, um, and actually feed feed into the market. Because if we look at nickel, for instance, we saw sort of a slight resurgence towards the end of last year, and then I think a lot of scrap came into the market and has affected price. And we had COVID on top of that, and um, you know we would. I think we were expecting maybe mid-year to see a recovery on nickel, but I think the reality is that's gone out to the end of the year. But in the meantime, the companies are going hungry. They're not able to invest. What's the impact on the market going to be? Um, I actually think nickel might be a slight exception to the general rule. The next wave of battery production for nickel is going to come from Indonesia. Uh, it's got the mines, it's got the processing plants, um, it already has a stainless steel plant, it has built out a full nickel supply chain in the space of five years. Um, and battery materials is the next part of that sort of like value add for them. Um, Indonesia has been relatively unaffected by COVID from a production point of view. Um, 
many kind. I mean, the, the lockdowns, I call it the lockdown lottery. Uh, if your metal comes from Peru, you've been had a lot of problems because Peru went into very, very hard lockdown. If you were in any way using Indian ports, you had a nightmare because they just closed. Indonesia has had light lockdown, and a lot of the, the nickel uh, part of the chain is in fairly isolated areas. So maybe sort of um, you might see some natural like overrun of those projects, but I've had no indication that they've been stalled or stopped. Um, so funnily enough, I think nickel may be quite well supplied ahead of what I regard, I, I expect to be the next EV sort of demand surge. Um, I don't think that's necessarily the case in either lithium or cobalt, for example. Um, lithium, sort of like I mean, is controlled by a small number of big players um, who kind of obviously they can weather this price storm and they will see themselves as the, the winners of the next uh, phase of the market. But, you know, it's five to six years to bring new brine capacity on. They should be building new capacity now, logically. But guess what? They're curtailing it. So you can see, uh, you know, you don't have to be a market genius to kind of uh, work out at some stage there is going to be a price reaction to that. Um, in the deal, uh, in Cobalt, you're really talking about the Democratic Republic of Congo. Um, there have been curtailments largely due to price uh, in part, um, but the big operators like Lillian have continued operating. Swing guys there are the artisanal miners. Uh, and they're out of the market at the moment, low prices. They've probably gone off to mine uh, gold. They're, they're highly adaptable. They will just go and sort of switch their efforts to whatever is good in price. Um, again, you know, you could see a situation when uh, cobalt's not well prepared for the next demand surge. You're going to be relying on those guys to come back to some extent. So I can see in both those scenarios uh, a coming sort of like a ne the next boom after the current bust. Nickel, because, I mean, those key projects seem to be running fairly unaffected, may be sort of better prepared. And do you think, so what does that mean? So Indonesia, obviously, there's a few few uh, commodities named there. So let's just go through a couple of those. Just one more question on each. Um, so Indonesia still performing at you know, reasonable levels or, you know, but it has not been noticeable that they, they haven't been affected greatly. Let's put it that way. What does that mean for nickel um Produce or producers or wannabe producers looking to get funded. So if you look in you know Canada, there's various the Sudbury region um, and the like. There's some there's some big nickel camps there looking to get into the market. Their expectation is that the demand for nickel will rise. Let's let's kind of uh, you know assume we get past the kind of COVID um, delta where where we've met perhaps the, the numbers are affected or don't come back as quickly or as strongly um, as hope, but they, let's assume they will get back. What about these producers outside of Indonesia? Where do they stand? How do they get their billion dollar uh, capex funding in, in place if Indonesia is going to be banging out nickel like there's no tomorrow? It's going to be a question of timing, and it may also sort of tie in with something we just discussed. Um, there's no doubt, I mean, no one's... Given the current battery technology parameters, there is going to be uh, a strong demand surge coming from uh, the EV sector for nickel down the line at some stage. Um, even with what's going on in Indonesia, you look at various projections, the world will need more nickel of the right quality to feed into that part of uh, the nickel supply chain. 
Remember that some nickel deposits just do not lend themselves easily to making sort of like precursors that you need for battery materials, right? Um, so trying to judge when that comes is, is a very difficult issue. But I mean, you know, there is hope from that point of view. Secondly, um, if you are working a deposit, let's say in Canada or Australia at the moment, right? You have one key advantage. You're not in any way connected with China as far as, um, as we said, the strategic thoughts about sort of a uh, metals policy go. Um, you know, I'm not saying that, I mean, uh, it's inevitable that there will be sort of like state funding for uh, nickel deposits in, shall we call them, friendly jurisdictions. Um, but I would be surprised if there were not a series of tax breaks and sort of like incentives going forward for that. Um, it just makes sense within the broader context. Uh, there are Canada and the United States have recently, I think last year, signed a mineral alliance for critical minerals. Uh, the US has done the same with Australia. And again, you can start seeing new supply chains being planned. So if you're a junior, as it were, looking to enter this market, that may be as relevant to you <laughs> in, this, in terms of financing as trying to guess the, uh, the multiple moving parts of the electric vehicle revolution. Just a thought. It's a frightening thought. <laughs> as an investor, as an investor, I'm trying. It's all about timing, as you say. It's all about timing, and we're just trying to work out, you know, which horse to back and, and, and when. And nickels particularly got complex because I mean it comes in so many different forms: uh, ferro-nickel, nickel sulfate. I mean, each of them has distinctive end-use sectors, all of which are moving at sort of different uh, paces anyway. But I mean, the, the key caveat I would say right now for nickel is: look, direct end-use by the EV sector. Is still marginal in the overall nickel picture. Listen, about three quarters of the all nickel mine goes into the stainless steel industry, right? Um, funny enough, it's something I'm, I'm writing today. You know, think about it. We, we don't think about these things. What happens if all the restaurants close in a post-COVID world? How much unused cutlery <laughs> comes back into the stainless steel system? Well, funny enough, I mean, analysts at City just did this calculation, and it's a comparable to a medium-sized nickel smelt. About 25,000 tons could be heading our way. So we have to accept the reality that right now, nickel is more beholden to the stainless sector than it is to EB. That will change. But again, how fast that change, well, it, it touches on a lot of uh, topics we, we've covered, right? How many new EVs are there going to be? How many new batteries or like a mega, mega battery parts are going to be built? Many moving parts. But right now, if you really want to understand nickel, you're probably better looking at the other uh, restaurant business than you are the EV business. Well, yeah, like I said, we did talk about earlier in this conversation about, you know, scrap has affected the nickel price. I think it was making a good recovery up until sort of September, August, September last year. And then, of course, the the scrap, which, which literally, is, literally, for people watching this, literally scrap being collected and hoarded for the moment when the price is right. And then it kind of floods the market for six, nine months or so, depending on how much it's been hoarded. And uh, before the sort of natural, the, the, the miners were able to get their stuff back into market at a price, which is, you know, the prices that they would like to achieve, to achieve the economics. But yeah, scrappers are really important, but often yeah. overlooked all the metal supply chains. It, it can really make a difference in price. The problem we all have is seeing that interaction. 
There are no exchange stocks or scrap. It just sits in yards around the world. Um, it flows in mysterious ways. It was uh, a lot of the copper scrap was going to China. Then China said it wouldn't take any copper scrap, right? Um, funny enough, I think a shortage of copper scrap in China is one of the reasons it's importing so much refined metal at the moment, right? Again, it's very hard to sort of quantify this because of the very nature of scrap chains. But I mean, never underestimate the impact they can have on the prime metal price. Absolutely. Every now and again, you just don't know when that wave's coming. But you, you mentioned the commodity there. We've not touched upon today, which is copper. What would you recommend? Because I think there's been a lot of copper companies come through our doors in recent times talking talking about their big porphyries or their VMSs and the fact that there's going to be a huge demand for copper coming with the, again, the battery revolution, the EV revolution. Um, what was the market like at the moment? Because it hasn't been good. What's happening today? Well, I mean, you say that. I mean, copper has put, uh, recovered in price a long way from its March lows. Um, remember, when you're talking about exchange-traded copper, we're talking about a metal that is very financialized, that does have a history of, uh, sort of following macro trends. I mean, one of the reasons copper is up at the moment is because the stock markets are up. Copper is part of a, you know, every macro hedge fund's little right portfolio. I mean, if they want to express themselves negatively or positively. Um, fortunately, um, you know, the optics of the copper market are really positive at the moment. As I just mentioned, China's imports are running extraordinarily strongly, um, surprisingly strongly. I would suggest that scrap is part of that dynamic. Exchange stocks have fallen. Um, and we've got to be be careful with exchange stocks there may be a lot that we can't see sitting off exchange but it's good optics right it, it, it's a the micro sort of like side of it seems to be reinforcing the more positive macro environment out there um, but we are still massively dependent on what happens in china right you've seen the first wave restock if you like um you may be seeing sort of like i mean uh sort of like supply chains issues there such as scrap which are now having to be compensated for but we never forget that a lot of the metal that goes into china comes out again as products it comes out as air conditioners fridges tv sets whatever that would be my one area of concern china's continued recovery is in part dependent on the rest of us right? buying stuff from china right and I think at the moment, the markets are really sort of like, I mean, putting a lot of sort of like, I mean, uh, focus on China itself, the domestic market, the stimulus package there. But as I said, that second wave demand uh, dimension is down to what happens in the rest of the world. So you could easily see maybe sort of like this initial burst of activity from China and then a sort of like a second stage, hold on, no one's buying our exports. <laughs> and I think that would be one of the main threats hanging over I mean, most of the, the big base metal markets at the moment, copper included. Yet China will absorb some of this in its infrastructure program, but the export dimension is worrying. And if you look at the um, purchasing managers indices recently, the headlines bounce back, export orders haven't bounced back. Yeah, I think that's a big one. I think, I think people, I've seen such a wide range of estimates there from different brokers, from different houses, just calling it diametrically opposite to each other. It's polar, polarizing views. So I'm not quite sure what I should be looking at or what I should be uh, believing. I know how I feel, but that 
that we, we, we shall wait and see what, what um, happens there. Um, a couple more commodities. Zinc, seen a bit of a recovery recently, having been down in the doldrums uh, for some time. Is, do you think that's going to be sustainable or are they going to be again impacted by these decisions make it made around uh, purchasing? Uh, the consensus out there says no, it's not sustainable for zinc. I mean, that's the, I think, a broad analyst consensus. Um, zinc's recovery in part was a uh, price recovery in part was down to, again, the, the lockdown lottery. Uh, zinc was particularly affected by lockdowns in India. Uh, in Peru and in Mexico. These are all key parts of the supply chain uh, in the global zinc market. Um, Just it's misfortune that that's where a lot of zinc comes from. Um, And you certainly saw um, a reaction down the supply chain of tightness in the raw materials market. China China was just kind of struggling to get what it needed to keep its smelters going, right? and that was kind of a very unexpected. We had, it, there was kind of, everyone expected ample supply in the raw materials market. Suddenly we had a squeeze on it. Now, I think that is passing, right? The lockdowns are gradually lifting. Um, the, uh, the supply chains are gradually normalizing. And I would, the net result of that should be Chinese smelters lifting their production rates. New raw material, good margins. Um, so you would expect that to feed through to the supply chain. Now, just in the last couple of days, by the way, um, again, the optics of the, the zinc market in London were looking very positive. There had been a small rebuild at Invisible Stocks, not that much. Uh, they were about 100,000 tons, which in the grand scheme of things is nothing. Uh, little pockets of tightness in the London market. Last couple of days, we've seen about 20, 30,000 tons delivered onto Ellen Warrants, yeah? That tells you there is zinc out there. Um, it, doesn't always turn up at the times we expected to turn up on the London Metal Exchange. Um, and I think that's what I mean most analysts would worry about now. As the Chinese, as the supply chain normalizes, we expect to see more production in China, more production in the rest of the world's smelters, and suspicion that that will be adding to already accumulated stocks. Yeah. So I think that's the broad narrative, I think. Um, there's very, very, relatively few contrarians around that one, which sometimes makes me suspicious. Yeah, it's been, a, it's been a funny one. We've been following it for, well, we invested three years ago, three and a half years ago. It's, it's, it's been a peculiar commodity, let's put it that way. Um, and the final one, uh, aluminium, just for our North American uh, viewers, that, that's the way it should be pronounced. Um, what's your view on uh, aluminium? Um, it looks like a, a, a renewed crisis for the aluminium sector. I mean, the, you know, the prices particularly badly. Um, we should have backed this one up. I mean, there's been a history of this in aluminium. Uh, we saw it in 2008, 2009, during the last financial crisis. There's a big problem if you make aluminium, right? It's really hard to turn off an aluminium smelter. Um, if you want to do it safely, it's going to take you a minimum three or four weeks. It could take you, you know, a couple of months. And guess what? It's going to cost you quite a lot of money. Yeah. Not just in terms of the simple like depowering of it, you're probably buying power on a long-term contract, which now you still got to sort of like compensate the, the power supply for. It's the very nature of the business. It cannot react very fast uh, to sort of price signals. Yeah. 
you know, you think about it, you see low nickel prices recently, there were already one or two smaller mines closing up shop, right? That's, that's what you expect to see. Aluminium has always struggled to do this. It did it in the last crisis, and the result was probably about 20 million tons of unsold stocks, which have pretty much sort of like, I mean, haunted the market ever since. Ironically, we're probably just starting to really sort of eat into those uh, stocks in the last couple of years. And guess what? Here we are again in crisis. Low prices, very, very few producers in a position to actually switch off their smelters. Um, it looks to be a repeat of history. Um, it's the only question is how much metal is going to be accumulated before you see a supply side response. Um, it's complicated in aluminium because so many smelters are now in China. And there have been more than suspicions in the past that when the, uh, the, the price says close, the smelters don't close because of sort of maybe owned by the local government, sort of like it's an employer, taxpayer. So it's a, a supply chain which is curiously unresponsive to even the most dramatic of price signals. Yeah? Um, so again, consensus out there, I would say pretty negative at the moment. Um, there will always be sort of a fun and games to be had with financing unsold aluminium stocks. It's one of the great sort of uh, things that uh, aluminium traders do when they're bored about like price movement. So again, you will see metal come into the London Metal Exchange in huge amounts, but you will also see it go out of the London Metal Exchange in huge amounts. That's just the financing trade. That's guys making money from buying short dated aluminium, holding it and selling it for a forward higher price. Um, but underlying it all, you can't have two of your key energy sectors collapse, such as aerospace and automotive, and not pay the price. So fun and games, financial fun and games there. How did people like me, family officers like me, not necessarily experienced in the day-to-day -day trading of, of metals or even retail or high net worth, what should we be looking for going forward? What, what, are the, what, what are the metals that we should be looking at? What are the companies we should be looking at and why? Well, I, I'm not in the stocks picking uh, world myself, but I mean, I think the issue becomes of, of trying to understand what I call the mega things of our age. Um, COVID has accelerated some of those mega things. What's uh, one mega thing? Electrification, right? The world has to go there. The world will go there at varying speeds, depending on national sort of like I mean outlook. But I mean, COVID is going to be an accelerator for that. So that's one of the big themes, right? But going with that is the greening of our broader economy, power generation, right? We don't want to use coal anymore. Um, between those two themes, there's going to be a very powerful driver of metals usage, right? Question then arises, which ones are the ones that will benefit? Um, and there's a lot of research out there. There's a lot of big World Bank reports to give you some clues as to uh, which are going to be uh, the, the likely winners, whatever technology solution is used. Yeah? I mean, one of the problems with the battery sector specifically, in terms of automotive battery, is it is still contested technology. The material mix of metal inputs is changing all the time. It may change more, right? That, you have an extra level of material uncertainty in the battery sector. But when you start looking at things like power grids, smart grids, right? You know it's going to use copper, for example. Like, it, it, it may use a bit of aluminium. You know, no one's going to reinvent, per se, that technology. Yeah? Um, so the, look for the big things. 
And the other big theme is actually, as, as I've tried to sort of, we talked a couple of times, but for me, the big theme is, is deglobalization of raw material supply chains. And it's political uh, and it's, it's a global phenomenon. Yeah. You know, um, the US government is increasingly prohibiting its military from buying materials from hostile nations, right? Quid pro quo, the military has to find materials in friendly nations. Where your deposit is, is has always been important in terms of the geology, but it's becoming massively important in terms of the politics of minerals. And the cost. And the cost, but it would be nice if government was prepared to give you a little helping hand. Well, there you go. That, that, that probably harks back to a different time. Um, well, Andy, thanks so much for running through that. I mean, great discussion about a variety of topics. I know we kept it broad today, but uh, if you were willing and able, we'd love to drill down on a couple of things you brought up there, which we hadn't really thought about before. So um, appreciate your time. You've got an article or two to write, haven't you? I'm going back to the stainless steel cutlery. Oh, there you go. <laughs> well... <laughs> Brilliant. Well, um, I do appreciate your time, Andy. Um, I look forward to speaking to you again soon. Yeah, let's keep in touch. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to Cruxcast or our website, cruxinvestor.com, and of course, our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming, and we'll speak to you again soon.